Hello and welcome to Tools in the Shed, a podcast powered by Cars Guide, ready to rip into car stuff that has caught our eye this week. I'm Cars Guide Deputy Editor James, and with me is staff journalist Tom Yo. and longtime contributor Steve. Greetings. This week, we're digging into performance SUVs moving into the mainstream. We'll look at some fresh metal in the Cars Guide garage, and we'll catch up with the Lord of the Silicon Valley rings in this week's Must Watch. So stay with us. But first, we've had some feedback from last week. And last week, our main topic of conversation was the Maxxis or LDV concept pickup or ute, whatever you want to call it. Um, and we had a lot of feedback, positive, negative, and somewhere in between. But David Birdie Burt um, said that he thinks the Maxxis concept says the Chinese can produce volume, but not design and create yet. It's that early stage kind of phase, he believes. Uh, you style it, design it, and we'll adopt it and adapt it, is what Bertie says. Um, front end has elements of Triton, Ranger, and Ram. The rear elements of X-Class. But he says it's obvious that by 2030, the Chinese brands are going to have had, uh, made a major impact into this market. So he sees that, uh, that the coming decade uh, as that occurring, it's hard to argue with that. Um, Mark Dunbar says, good stuff, guys. Thank you, Mark. Interested to see what comes out of China next year. We'll be in the market for a dual cab ute 4x4 in early 2021. Any word on when we may see something new from LDV or, great, or the Great Wall Cannon? And the next thing we're going to see from LDV, and we've run a story on this, is not a ute, but it's the Deliver 9, which is a large van. So it's this big uh, box on wheels, and that'll launch by the end of this year, we believe. And the Canon uh, was going to be mid-year, but it'll be by the end of this year as well, is our latest mail. So that whole Chinese brand thing just continues to build. Um, Faldo 13 says the new Great Wall, the Havel H6, could be something to look at if it will be off-road worthy. Uh, the looks have changed dramatically inside and out. It uh, was very round, now blocky as hell, Bronco-influenced almost. So there's that styling thing. You know, they're starting to, to take up uh, influences from elsewhere. I think um, he's, he's not talking quite about the H6. Uh, he's talking about the uh, uh, what's known in China as the big dog. Big dog. Yeah, which, which we, it, I dog. think it has those indicators or the, the running lights that go into the headlights in Bronco that's, fashion. Is that right? That's the um, that's the Way version, which is like the luxury spinoff of Haval <laughs> in China, and it's called yeah. Tank 300, and it's got these that's really right. cool indicators and stuff. The Tank yeah. 300, but, yeah. But they're basically the same car, and they're kind of, at a, a, I think dimensionally, they're slightly smaller than a Prado, and it's all sort of off-road focused and has that kind of uh, out there jeep slash land rover styling going on um we did think at one point it was going to be a replacement for the haval h5 but i think it's its own product line okay well that's great we'll have some pics of those for uh people on youtube so that they can uh, get an appreciation for what we're talking about lofty visions has actually gone as far as joining a t60 facebook group to do a bit of research just for the fun of it um and he says some are very happy some not usually uh, issues include rust which I thought was really a thing, a thing of the past. Like that, that's uh, a blast from the past. <laughs> and dodgy multimedia, a few other things. But basically mm. he says he can't see Toyota and Ford shaking in their boots just yet. You know, that the, the feedback from the owners of these vehicles uh, would indicate that anyway. Um, but then we got into a, a pretty strong vein of reluctance based on these vehicles being Chinese. Now, 
It's not necessarily uh, anything to do with anything except politics. Um, so Tom Inman said, you know, love them, but now nothing from China. Um, wouldn't do it. Uh, Griffo says likes it, says he'd buy one, but it's made in China, so he won't. And Bernie Sutton said not about to send thousands of dollars to China after the Chinese Communist Party's performance. It could be the best thing going, but I won't be buying it. Mm. So there's a lot of that. Dave XB, I was just about to buy an LDV T60, and he's presumably trading in his XB Falcon on the T60 if his uh, name is Dave XB. Then, <laughs> the, then the Chinese Communist Party started bullying Australia for simply requesting an independent inquiry into COVID-19. And uh, so there's a big, no, I won't go there. Steve Davis, Stephen Davis, I think, could be the six-time world snooker champion, uh, Steve Hope Davis, so. I'm not sure. Hope so. Uh, forget the Chinese crap, guys. No one is that stupid. His word's not mine. Um, Peter Crott, I'm not ready to buy a Korean car yet, let alone a Chinese one. We started to go down this <laughs> rabbit hole of reluctance. Um, and then Griffo came back and said, Kia has been on the improve for years. You've got a seven-year warranty. When the market moves to seven, they'll go to 10. You know, how can you argue with that? To which Peter Crock came back and said, he agrees they're well-made and reliable. He was just very transparent and said, I just couldn't stand the badge. I don't, I don't want a Kia. So he's still got that reluctance. Um, and so that's interesting. Then we moved on to uh, some thoughts on the Mazda 3 Skyactiv X. Um, and Tom... This is your bailiwick, really, because you've been to the launch of that car locally. And G-Man said, hi, Shed of Tools. So, hello, G-Man. Uh, Mazda 3, Astina Skyactiv-X. Why would Mazda go 24-volt mild hybrid when the rest of the civilised world uses 48-volt? And he goes on to compare, you know, cars like the Corolla hybrid as being more genuine in terms of fuel savings. Have you got any mail on that, having attended the, the launch? Yeah, I'd say it's a really good question, and there's a lot of really fascinating stuff about about uh, this technology that Mazda are you know employing. Um, I would say, without knowing you know the full inner workings of Mazda, that um, the 24 volt thing it's a, a sort of step in the water, and it's a Mazda, of course, you know, being a brand that is investing so much in R&D at the moment, probably has limited resources and has to pick and choose its battles when it comes to this stuff. So I actually don't think they have a market-ready 48-volt front-wheel driving uh, technology ready to go. Uh, we yeah. know that they've got a full EV coming in the form of the um, MX-30. Um, but yeah, this 24-volt system, he's right, it doesn't drive the wheels. It just uh, supports auxiliary systems and, the, the importantly, the starter generator and the motor. That's the major one, so it takes that initial stress off. Right. Um, and yeah, the, he, he did have another part to the question that I saw, uh, which was, uh, you know, uh, how come um, how come it, it runs on... Oh, no, that was another question. How come it runs on 95 in Australia? Um, yeah, and that's, uh, that that's was... All that's TGV, the very yeah. fast train. TGV was, was saying um, <laughs> he wants to know if the uh, SCCI four-cylinder engine um, needs 95 RON. Has Mazda provided any info if E1094 RON makes a difference on yeah. how the system works? That was the question. Yeah, okay. So in Australia, can't run on 91 because of the high sulfur content in our, in our base crap-grade fuel. Um, but it, it, it has to run on 95. Uh, 
Now, is, that the, is that the Bowser at the end of the lineup? You go kind of 98, 95, then crap, crap grade? Is just yeah, this, crap yeah. grade. Yeah, anyway, um, the, um, the fuel filler said you could put E10 in it. Right. It said E10 mm. compatible. Um, okay. I have actually well, asked I can the tell question. You, I've, I've, I've driven around Scotland for a few days uh, early last year, and we were allowed to put whatever fuel in it we liked. Obviously, that's European right. spec fuel, but yeah, right. we, we were running it on E10 and everything. So over there, you can use whatever you like. And it was, I can report after like, three days and quite a lot of kilometres. Yeah. It was very economical. Well, I mean, TGV makes the point that E10 is basically one-third oxygen, <laughs> which could lift <laughs> the octane up. Um, to something like a 94, and detonation is so crucial in this um, technology that the octane rating of the fuel you're using does make a, a difference. Yeah. Or, or maybe it doesn't because there's Mazda saying, you know, use what you like. They said running on 95 over 91 in our market won't make a noticeable difference apparently. Um, and so just to jump back to G-Man's question quickly, yep. uh, he was he is right. Um, if you're looking for, for like big-time fuel savings, you, you are going to have to look at like a Corolla hybrid or something instead. Um, and he did call out the fact that um, we got a remarkably low fuel usage number. Uh, I got uh, 6.4 litres to 100, which is quite low considering, you know, the 2.5 litre will, will do 8 point something, you know, in normal, normal real-world testing. Right, yes. Um, and he also said that uh, other outlets had gotten wildly different numbers which is also true but yeah. i mean all i did was uh follow the prescribed drive loop which was just over 100 k's and then i put another 100 k's on it before our video day which always blows out the fuel number anyway so the and the number i recorded before our video day was 6.4 so i mean i can only and there was a lot of traffic in there so it wasn't like it was all freeways um well i did about a thousand kilometers and i remember that i got between 6.3 and 6.5 Okay. You know, I drove two different cars, two different yep. cars over that time. They were swapping yep. between the cars. And one yep. was a manual, one, one was an automatic. So. Right. Well, neither of you are notorious hypermilers. You know, you're not necessarily known for your greasy throttle application. What or, is hypermiling? Oh, well, it's just trying to get the, the, the most kilometres out of a, you know, a drop of dinosaur juice. Um, <laughs> just, just, just to round that one up, though, quickly, I have asked the question about 94. I haven't got an answer yet, so I will uh, find that out uh, in the good. future. Good, okay. Well, maybe we can update next review. week. Yeah. yeah, very good. Now, we also had some feedback on the Bronco. Thank you, Tom. Thank you for that. Um, Dan White doesn't understand the Bronco hype. He's just not getting it. How many people want to remove the roof and doors <laughs> is his question. Um, you know, Americans. Well, that's true. But if he says if it came with a solid front axle or something a bit more hardcore, he could understand it. But he sees it as something similar to the FJ Cruiser, kind of echo of a past model um, made modern. Um, but really, if you want to go rock crawling, you're into something like a 76 series Land Cruiser or even a Jimny or a Wrangler. And Hammer Rocks, our old mate Hammer Rocks, came back and said, you're obviously not the target demographic, though I agree with you on the 70 series and Jimny but wouldn't touch the Wrangler unless I like fixing things on a regular basis, uh, was his uh, commentary on the Wrangler. Then we had a bit of back and forth between Dan White and Hammer Rocks. Dan White, Wrangler good. Hammer Rocks, Wrangler Rubicon, bad. So there was uh, a lot of, it would be good to get a bit more feedback on that one. Then Gray Nichols, obviously the heir to the cricket bat fortune, and although he spells it, Spells it differently, which is probably a little bit like uh, Don Bradman's son, John, moving to the surname Bradson. So it's Gray <laughs> Nichols, but, but different spelling. And we last week we were talking about the suspension on the Bronco. 
and how it was a little bit old-fashioned being a pan-hard rod setup. But Gray Nichols says the HQ did, all caps, not have a pan-hard rod. The live axle was located via two outboard lower drag links and two diagonal links in the same uh, uh, in the centre above the diff. The Tirana also used this setup. The Panhard rod was first used in 78 in the Commodore. Now, TGV, the very fast train, took umbrage with that and said Commodore had the same rear suspension as Kingswood. Coil spring live axle located by Panhard rod. And <laughs> Grey Nichols said, can't tell you how many Kingswoods I've been under and never once saw a stock Panhard rod. It's a four-link GM setup. And then TGV, no, it isn't. Grey Nichols, yes, it is. And then Grey Nichols um, put a link to a site called Chevy DIY, which shows the structure of these different setups. So join in the debate. Is it a panhard rod or isn't it? Let's really get this fight uh, happening. Then we had some general, more general feedback at the end. Now, Ghulam Dustgear gave us four thumbs up, which is great, which actually is on top of the 14 that he gave us last week. So our, our dust gear thumbs up tally currently sits at 18, which is good, and we'll keep, we'll keep tabs on that. Tally. Ian, Ian Thomas said, good on you, Crafty. You're a funny man. Good show tools with two thumbs up. So that was very good. Hammer rocks. Crafty is demand. Crafty <laughs> for prime minister, exclamation oh. point. Please. So I don't know where we'd be heading if Crafty was actually controlling things um, in Canberra. And the final comment is Grained Smile simply asking, what is this vid? And I think it's a very good question. I, mm -hmm. I think it's probably hard to define, but if he watches a couple more, maybe he'll get an idea. But what we'll move on to now is our main topic of conversation, which is a Stephen Otley story that, that ran during the week on carsguide.com.au about how the whole idea of the performance SUV is moving from the premium part of the market more into the mainstream um, with cars like Volkswagen's Tiguan R, the Hyundai Kona N, Skoda Kodiak RS. So that whole desire to have your cake and eat it too, I want the practicality of an SUV, but I'd like something with a little bit of engagement in terms of the drive experience, seems to be finding a broader market. Steve, I know in the past you've been reasonably vocal about finding it a, a bit of a question mark as to why this even exists. Would that be true to say? Oh, I, I think I understand why it exists, but I don't like it. And as far as eating your cake and having it too, here's a normal-sized cake and here's an SUV would be a wedding cake with three tiers on it. And if you try and drive a wedding cake quickly around a corner, I think uh, the, the laws of gravity will tell you it's going to fall over. And uh, that's good, the whole problem. Very good. It's very all good. about the centre of gravity. And, uh, you know, I, I, I infamously refused to drive a Cayenne, I think, for about seven years, but I tried to pretend they didn't exist. I didn't like the idea, so I blame Porsche for everything. But, right. Uh, yes, that's okay. My, that's my feeling about the cake. <laughs> my, mate, my mate Bram, who is a very, very diehard air-cooled 911 enthusiast, um, thinks that Porsche actually ceased to exist in 1996 when the 911 went to water cooling and he has been known to spontaneously flip the bird at Machan and Cayenne drivers in general traffic. So I think that takes it to the nth degree. He blames Porsche for everything as well. I'm, um, I'm actually surprised that this hasn't happened sooner, this whole filtering down of performance SUVs to, you know, mainstream automakers. Like, uh, it's such an obvious moneymaker, isn't it? Like, you see how many 
you know, uh, Macans and KNs and, uh, you know, GLC 63s that they sell, you, you know, what aren't they missing a trick? Why hasn't so. this happened sooner? Yeah. Well, you I, I mean, look, a... and I, I agree, I agree. Like, high centre of gravity in, 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 a, in a performance car is silly, you know. It, it is truly, it, it's such a ridiculous concept. But you you know that there's going to be legions of people out there who will buy these things. Yeah, mm. I agree, I agree. And I suppose you don't have that lower centre of gravity that you have in a more conventional car. But if you are, for whatever reason, drawn towards an SUV, and yet there's part of you that would like to have a slightly more involving drive experience, there's nothing to say you can't do it. It just doesn't make a lot of technical sense. An engineer mm. would turn around and say to you, why are you doing that? Um, mm. It just, why are, we, why are we working on this suspension? It doesn't make any sense to me. Mm. Well, the person in that situation needs to buy a mirror and have a good heart look at themselves because um, <laughs> they, you can't have both. You can have one yeah. or the other, or you can have you can have both if you buy two cars. Have your family SUV and then get yourself a little MX-5, second, whatever you can afford, just get yourself a car that you can actually drive and enjoy. Well, the, the we're going to have one of the most... Thing about, the yeah. thing about them is that um, as annoying as they are, as annoying as they are, the, the Macan is actually fantastic to drive. It's like, awesome. They have actually... <laughs> I hate saying it and I hate driving because it makes me so... It's such a wonderful mix of happy and unhappy at the same time. Do, yeah. do you know, my theory on that is that Porsche, it's almost like they were beta testing their SUVs out in market. They didn't really know why they were doing this. They just knew they had to, to make some money, sold the first few ones, and then now they're getting into their stride. And I think the more recent versions of both KN and Machan are way, way better. Well, you know, I just had the gts version of the machado you're absolutely right oh. steven it was just awesome like it it, 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 it feels like a porsche it's silly yeah it's yeah. silly it shouldn't be it's, that good it just shouldn't be that good it's so heavy but it's also so fast oh yeah mm. yeah no i think they've they've sort of wrapped their head around no this isn't a sports car this is something else and in typical porsche um teutonic fashion they've with determination made it work somehow uh, it's it's engineering voodoo but um they're, they're terrific so i mean if some of that as well is able to filter down into the the volume market um wow terrific you know the the kodiak rs skoda's got a bit of a track record with rs models and and making their octavia rs a, a bit of a cult car in terms of performance if they can work a bit of that magic that'd be a great car too Octavia. Golf, golf gti magic for uh, the you know the things like the Tiguan and so on, you can see them coming up with something quite good as well. Absolutely. Octavia RS Wagon is famously the motoring journalist car, isn't it? It's like, <laughs> quite a few, quite a few own one. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, and, I mean, one of, the, one of the biggest selling cars in the market, the, the, the best-selling midsize SUV anyway, um, CX-5 Mazda, um, that's going to have a turbo engine, not necessarily an outright performance car, but it's starting to get a little more underfoot and becoming more dynamic rather than just utilitarian and practical. Mm. You think about Hyundai and how they're leveraging the whole N thing, and we're going to have Kona N, Tucson N, Santa Fe N. Um, so they're going quite heavily into it as well. Ford will have the Puma ST and an Endura ST. So the choice will be fairly broad. Uh, in the not too distant future, the the Volkswagen T Rock R, Tiguan R, so not just a GTI, but going straight to a, a slightly more hardcore version of of those vehicles as well. And you'd have to think, given their track record, 
that last time, you know, with the Duke, Nissan was mucking around with Nismo versions, which were largely cosmetic. But this time, I'm sure we'll see a Nismo version of that, maybe in the fullness of time, once you pass the first flush of that model um, arriving in market. So there's going to be quite a lot of it. Mm-hmm. It makes sense that whatever people drive, and that's why everyone drives now is an SUV, whatever people drive, there's going to be people who want a sportier version. Yes. And Australians particularly love them. Look how much how much uh, AMG badging we go for. We love the sportier stuff. So if there's an option there, if mm. people will buy it. So it seems crazy to say, Tom, that people have that these car companies haven't jumped on this before. I'd be all over it if I was in planning. And just yeah. quickly about Port, the Porsche engineers and the Voodoo, I think um, I think it behoves the world to ask Porsche to fix cancer because they could pretty much do it. <laughs> that's true. Hey, that's a great idea. That is a great idea. We'll or solve COVID. <laughs> think, well, think about how quickly Formula One teams, even Australian supercar teams, were on to making ventilators, you know, portable uh, ventilators. They were able to turn their, their skills to that very, very rapidly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, that's interesting. I agree. And um, you think about Nismo, you think about N, you think about R, all these letters that just um, are AMG. You mentioned AMG, Steve. We, I think, in Australia, in terms of the number of AMGs sold in this market relative to the number of Mercedes-Benzes, it's the biggest piece of that pie in any market in the world. Um, Australians just love their performance cars. So you're right, Tom, it's a very logical thing that probably should have happened some time ago. Mm. Yeah, so all I, right. look forward to, I look forward to hate, hating the experience of driving all of them. <laughs> <laughs> all right, would be, it'd be great to get people's feedback too who are listening or viewing this. Where do you stand on this? Are you in the market for these things? It may not be possible to do the both thing very, very soon, Steve. You know, buy buy a car, buy the SUV. It's rapidly becoming the case that all you can buy is SUVs. There aren't that many cars kind of uh, left in the market. SUV now counts for more than 50% of all vehicles sold. So once you count in utes and commercial vehicles and what have you, the, the piece of the pie that is conventional cars is getting so small. Oh, I know. I went to an Audi A4 and A5 launch this week, and I was, I was genuinely surprised they were still bothering. But they, uh, yeah. they make up about 40% of their sales, and 40%, they said, is still a reasonable number. <laughs> yes. Well, it is. Sedan, the non-SUVs are 40%. That's still a bit, but yeah, it's sort of almost alarming how high the number is. It's true. All right. Well, look, it'd be great to get people's feedback, their thoughts on this migration of the whole concept of a performance SUV into the mainstream market. But we'll move to our garage and the cars that we've been driving this week. And Steve, can I kick it off with you? You have been in a Range Rover Sport, but a particular variety of that vehicle. Yes, speaking of uh, performance SUVs, the Range Rover Sport's one that's always confused me the most because it's just so massive. And you're literally, I reckon you're, you're sitting in that car, you're sitting on the roof of any normal car. <laughs> <laughs> but I've got a I've got a plug-in hybrid version, so speaking of making no sense at all. But I'm trying to I'm trying to embrace the future, so I thought I would uh, go and plug it in to see if it actually made a difference. So I, I felt a, a green glow of satisfaction as I sat at the tram sheds near my house, a local shopping centre, for an hour, and uh, then came out to the car, giggling to myself, look, look, I've done taking photos, and plugged it in, turned it on, and hadn't charged at all. Not one, <laughs> not one volt, not one ampere, complete fail. And I was like, well, I can't. I just, I just imagine going to the fuel station, standing there and just getting coming away with nothing. The car just rolling to a stop and going, well, that's not going well. So um, so as it speaks, as we speak, I've got a cable coming over my front fence and I'm trying to find an extension cord long enough to charge it. And what, what kind of well. charge level were you on before you went to charge it up? Were you completely drained or still had some capacity in there? 
it was brought to me by a colleague who said that he brought it here completely flat and said you'll need to charge it thanks very much and he said, I, I think see. it makes a difference he said it distinctly it makes a distinct difference to the way it drives when you've got some electric charge so you have to go and charge it so he's helpfully brought it to me empty he has you know it's a famous motoring journalist tradition to drop off a car at someone else's house with nothing in it and <laughs> yes. uh, and said you'll, and you'll have to sort it out yeah. good yeah. luck <laughs> yes oh brilliant um, Thanks, so Toby then you've got it charging. So have you had much of an opportunity to to steer it so far? So I've only driven it without this extra extra charge, and it is you know, a typical uh, you know typical Range Rover Sport. It just it's like driving a jumbo jet. It's just like yeah. there's yeah. where I live, there's no room for it anywhere. I can't reach the start button. Um, they put the windows up, up <laughs> in the wrong spot. Everything about it. it it's, it's hard to think of a car that's more that's less mean. I think. <laughs> But I love the look of it. God, it's fantastic, and it's really it does look good. Cool. So, it does look like, good. I could just sit in it and not go anywhere. I think I'd be quite happy. Uh-huh. I mean, Jerry McGovern at Land Rover is someone who is consistently delivering fantastic-looking vehicles. It's always subjective, of course, but uh, to my eyes, pretty much everything in the Land Rover, Range Rover world um, is is appealing. Although oh, there are, are, it's amazing. <laughs> well, see, Matt Campbell, if he were here, he would shout you down. He'd be howling oh, really? you down because, yeah, he sees it as way too smooth and soft and sleek, whereas he sees an SUV come four-wheel drive should have an element of not quite aggression but be a little more masculine, be a bit tougher. Um, and yeah, a people, bit Cybertruck? No, maybe <laughs> not quite as far as Cybertruck, <laughs> but he's seeing it as, as too smooth and too, too glassy and glossy and sleek. He wants it to have a little more personality. Yeah, yeah, I think that it's I, think a Range I think they were reflecting their buyer now, you know, like they're, they're so city bound and that's more, you know, to the the taste of, you know, city slicking buyers. Whereas, you know, I was a huge fan of the first Range Rover Sport because it was so it wasn't like any other SUV on the market. It was still kind of like angular and, and right. rugged and there was yeah. there was some really sort of tough bits to it. And I, I miss yeah. that about it. It was like a punch in the face, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but then the Evoke. Uh, changed everything because oh, that, that was a car. That was a car that arrived as a concept, and if you if you to believe what we're told, pretty much that was just as a concept. Like we we probably won't end up build, building that. But Jerry McGovern was able to lobby and get it through, virtually unscathed, and it made it to market looking just like that. And it changed the look of of uh, Land Rovers and Range Rovers from there on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think yeah. it's really hard to make an SUV look good. And that's why he's a genius. Like it's very yeah. difficult, you know. But yeah. uh, I can't, I can't but help but like the look of them. And I think the Velar just gives you an option if you if you want a, a rugged square one, you can still have one. Yeah. But if you want, if it's a, if, I think it's a Velar's the sort of person who would have bought a Jaguar, but now they have to have an SUV. You know? Yes, good point. Well, I really like the base model one with the tiny little wheels on it. it looks, it looks a bit more, you know, tough, bit more Range Rover, you know. Mm. In the in the Velar, Tom. Yeah, in the Velar. Yeah, right. It's an absolute okay. base model, smallest possible wheels. Right. Yeah, That's yeah. what I'm on. <laughs> now, um, staying on the subject of SUVs and also ones that you can plug into an electric socket, Tom, tell us what you've been driving. So I've had the Mercedes-Benz GLC 300E, um, which is a paragraph in and of itself, but that yep. is Mercedes-Benz's midsizer, and this is the plug-in uh, hybrid electric one, just like the uh, Range Rover that uh, Stephen's been driving. And so uh, I have the same problem, though. I have nowhere to charge it at home. and um, But my car did uh, arrive to me with some charge. 
So um, it had about 80%. And for the first sort of day and a half where I was driving it and making the most of it, I had about 38Ks range out of 48, I think, uh, is right. its max charge. Yep. And those first days of driving it, it just changed my mind about it altogether. I think the GLC should be an electric car now because it's okay. so much better in electric mode. It's silent and it's like you're floating on a cloud through and no one no one can hear you and you can't hear anyone and you're just sort of you know wafting through towns and stuff and the suspension because that car the special thing about that car is you can buy the regular glc 300 or you can buy this car for a few grand more but it includes the the air suspension package which costs the same as the difference so you're basically getting a plug-in hybrid for free um and you get the air suspension package so it's amazing it's just it like nothing bothers this thing on the yeah. road. And to me, yeah. that's, you know, speaking, going back to performance SUVs, that's what SUVs should be about. They should be comfortable. They shouldn't be about, you know, bashing around and throwing it into corners and stuff. <laughs> they should be about just, you know, wafting through towns and not being bothered by speed bumps and potholes and whatnot. Um, well, so that, that would be a particular approach to the SUV, Tom. There are yeah. some others that may have a different purpose in mind. Well, anyway, to me, that's what an SUV I think you'd like the Rolls Royce very much and the Manteca. <laughs> exactly. That's your kind of SUV. <laughs> well, anyway, but I thought I thought it suited, you know, uh, the the design of this car as well. Like, you, you know, you sit in a GLC and it's kind of got that kind of a little bit more old world Mercedes-Benz design. There's less of the flashy stuff that you see in the smaller cars. Um, and so it sort of suits that kind of like opulent interior treatment. But sure. um yeah, it was interesting because once I'd run out of charge, um, I'd started using the petrol engine. And for the first two or three days after that, I got quite annoyed because it wasn't as good as the electric mode. So what I'd started right. doing is sticking it in sport mode, and that stops the engine from turning off. With And the advantage of that is the engine starts charging the battery. So I, see, I would drive I it around in sports mode for two days so I could drive Just it around. Charge battery. Battery. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I totally take your point about air suspension. A well-engineered air suspension uh, system is a thing of beauty. Uh, the, the, the way in which uh, they can iron out even a corrugated surface is quite extraordinary. So uh, I hear you loud and clear on that. And it's really interesting that you see it as a better vehicle in electric mode. That's uh, very telling. Now, I've got a question for Mr. Corby, though. Does your um, Range Rover have a public charging cable, like a Type 2 to a Type 2, so you can charge it like a, a shopping centre or something? It did have, I, I plugged it in. I think where it could have gone wrong is that I plugged it into a Tesla charger. Now, the thing is, you can steal power from Tesla chargers, and we did it recently at the racetrack at Eastern Creek. But I think there's a switch, I think there's a switch that the, the provider can turn which stops that happening. Oh, I see. Yeah. So I've, got a cable, I've got the cable plugged in at the moment coming over my fence, but it, I just used a public charger into the, into the front. I haven't but got you, all the way to the house yet. Look, let's not do one got... step at a time. You've got both cables then. You've got the one that goes type 2 to type 2, and then you've got yeah. the one that goes to a wall socket. Because yeah. in the GLC, the type 2 to type 2, the public charging cable is a $540-something option. Um, so what? it didn't come with my car, so I couldn't charge it at my local shops, which has just put a brand-new charger wow. system in. Yeah. Wow. Which was wow. very upsetting. <laughs> so the cable, the, cable you've, the cable you've got going over the fence, Steve, that's not into your neighbour's charger. That's... Uh, somewhere <laughs> out to the, to the to my house. Oh, yeah, okay. Go sure. to my house eventually. All right. God, God willing. Bunnings willing. <laughs> Bunnings willing. I will find it. Take long enough. But I mean, these are terrific examples of real world issues that are at the moment still a limitation in terms of EV ownership. 
um, for a lot of people. Garage. Look at your house, James. If I had a garage, everything would be fine. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, councils, local governments, uh, state, federal, are thinking about infrastructure, some more than others, but how to, when you're in a, a street, houses don't have garage, uh, you're parking on the street, how do you make some little outlet that uh, attaches itself to the gutter or somehow the edge of the footpath that's able to be accessed in a secure way. It's a bit of a head-scratcher at the moment, but people are working on it. It's, it's an interesting one, I think, for Sydney particularly because in the, a lot of those wealthier suburbs where you've got people who might actually take the dive on a luxury electric car like that, um, that, you know, Paddington, uh, like suburbs like Enmore, so, like suburbs like that where people, there's nowhere to charge. Like yeah. how can you, you don't have a garage. Well, so I, I mean, Steve, Steve's a um, Balmain basket. Balmain, he's go, he's yeah. in exactly the same situation. A basket. <laughs> well, I can tell you, without exaggeration, I have seen three new, three new Teslas within within two blocks of my street in the last week. And in the last month, probably between six and nine, they are buying Teslas around here like we believe because they, they've, got, they've got stupid amounts of money. So, but the, if you look up, there is nowhere in the whole suburb to charge. Wow. Not I see. One charging point. I have to go to Glebe to the tram sheds, which is the one I tried, or you can go to Birkenhead Point, which is... Right. So, so you've got to go over the hell bridge. On earth. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, like, yes. it's like it's got the worst car park in the known universe. You could be in there for days. Yeah. At least you'd have time to charge a car. But the, the fact that all these people are buying them, yet no one's done anything, you know, it's a basket weaver council. They've done nothing about providing charging points anywhere. Like put yes. some outside the town hall, put one in the Woolies car park. I mean, you, you go to America, they're in, you pull in for a burger, there's one in the in the car park at the burger place. You're only going to be in there for three hours eating and you yes. still, can still charge a car. Charge a car. I suppose it could be a case where demand just forces some kind of change as opposed to a preemptive strike on the part of councils. They, they Their hand may be forced over time. Yeah, well, that's right. They just put in this massive new... Uh, car park and shopping complex near me and that has uh, if you go down a few levels in the car park it's got an entire section for car charging and there's tesla right. and public charging right. so um, there are some I, of broadway i think as well broadway has them there's a there's a like yeah area there but the thing yeah. is about these teslas I, I see them because each one of those teslas i mentioned is parked in the street out front of a house there's yep. a, or they've got a driveway but none of them have garage so i actually may go and knock on the doors and saying how are you charging these yes yeah 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 very would be i've seen them plugged in it would be an interesting and quite creepy exercise to actually do yeah. that. To have me turn up on your door and ask strange <laughs> questions about your, about your and power source. Just, on the, well, just while we're on, I know we probably have to move on quickly, but just while we're on the topic of these, I do yeah. have to bring up the uh, fuel number that I ended up with because I have just okay. returned the GLC. And uh, the fuel number that I ended up with was really interesting. I think it's a, a cautionary tale. It'll be in the review. And there's a whole lot of extra weight in a plug-in hybrid. So the GLC's other... Uh, power source is a two-litre turbo engine with um, healthy power figures. Mm. Um, but it has to drag around all this extra weight of this battery system and the, the charging infrastructure and whatever that's inside the car. Mm. Um, so the fuel figure, even though I had drove it around for two days on all-electric mode, um, the fuel figure I ended up with after a week was 10 litres to 100, which still uh, isn't great. And their, and their um, you know, lab-reported figure is two-point-something. Well, see, the, I think I think the trick yeah. there, Tom, is that that's for 100 kilometres. So that figure is calculated over 100 kilometres. So what you've got for that 100 is a fully charged mm. system. The next 100, that may not be the case. In the real world, you're probably going to drive it on the petrol engine for a certain period of time. So it's an even more artificial figure than some others may be um, with plug-in hybrids. It's something to be aware of. 
Absolutely. Is there a rumour that the guy driving it was zooting around in sports mode? Uh, <laughs> That's true. Yeah, so that, that you could true. charge the battery. Which it's is clearly, a it's green clearly, problem. It's clearly a strategy that doesn't work. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but I, I think the interesting thing is if you are considering a plug-in, you have to have somewhere to charge it if you're going to make the most of it. So yeah. that's just worth otherwise, thinking about. Otherwise, what's the point? Yeah. 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 Well, otherwise, you're going to be dragging around a lithium-ion battery and your poor petrol engine is going to be trying harder to do it. So you're going to yeah. end up with worse fuel figure anyway. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, I've been driving a car where the only battery is next to the engine up the front and probably in the key fob uh, flipper when you're um, locking the car or opening the tailgate. It's um, an RSQ3, the wagon version, as opposed to the, the slightly sleeker Sportback. Um, it's just under $90,000 before you put it on the road. Two and a half litre turbo, five cylinder uh, petrol engine. Seven-speed dual-clutch auto, all-wheel drive, uh, just under 300 kilowatts, which isn't too bad, um, 480 newton metres, and all of that is available from just under 2,000 RPM. It weighs about 1.8 tonnes, and in the plus column, I had that it is punchy. It's really fast. It is it is pretty fast car, um, very good quality in current Audi fashion. Um, the electric steering, surprisingly good. Um, and it's well equipped. You've got everything from AEB to this fancy Napa leather with the red cross stitching, and it, it all—it's a beautiful environment um, to be in. Um, on the not so good side, I had that you get quite a lot of rollback with the dual clutch when you when you're trying to start off, be it in reverse or whatever. Just to manage that takes a little bit of getting used to. It can be a little bit clunky when you're in parking manoeuvres. That that dual clutch as well. It's quite firm in terms of its its ride. And um, so the, the refinement is a, is a question you'd have to ask yourself before opting in for a car like that because it is a performance SUV. So you, you gain something and you possibly lose on the other side in terms of that refinement factor. But it was a fun week in that car because it is a quick little SUV. Um, now, what we are going to do is we're going to move on now to Muskwatch. And we can kick it off with a provocative tweet. Of course, uh, the dear leader was on the Twitters uh, this week, and he simply said, aliens built the pyramids, obviously. Um, so he was wanting to capture a particular response, and the crazies came out right on cue. And Jay Laws said, men may have built them, but they are far too grand for tombs. You know yourself, it's some kind of power plant harnessing the Earth's magnetic field. I think it was Tesla who stood on top with a light bulb that illuminated. Please figure this out for humanity. So all I'm thinking is if it's a power source and a person stood on the top and all they could light up was a light bulb, even if that did happen, I don't think it's very efficient. Yeah, <laughs> it's a poor kilowatt hour per kilometre so. sort of rating, isn't it? I think so. There is a point that they are tombs as well because there are bodies inside. Anyway. Too true. Fine. Too true. So do I argue. Um, Hagrid said, dear Elon, I agree with you completely. I always thought the same and everybody told me I'm crazy. So he's found a kindred <laughs> spirit. Um, then there was another person who found, who claims that in the Istanbul Museum, uh, there's a sculpture of a headless astronaut in a spacesuit sitting into a, a rocket inside a rocket ship covered in tubes. And there's a picture of that for people who uh, want to have a look at it um, on YouTube. So, yeah, the, the crazies came out. But he hooked a big fish um, with one of Egypt's top archaeologists, Zahi Hawass, who, uh, in response, unleashed on Instagram 
because it's a very touchy subject for Egyptians. The pyramids, mm. of course, they're very proud of this. One of the wonders of the ancient world, um, the, these uh, ancient structures. And he was keen to put Elon back in his place and say, what you said about the pyramids is complete hallucinations. Um, you are basically a trolley. The pyramids were built by Egyptians. And he went at great lengths to prove that that was the case. But I think Elon got the intended result there by putting that that tweet out. I got to say though, I, like uh, I'm, I agree there. I I don't like this idea of celebrities sharing conspiracy theories and you know normalizing them into popular culture. It's just a bad. Like this is one of the least dangerous ones. The whole. Yeah. You know, pyramids built by aliens. That's you know well, whatever. I mean, he but, he was joking. He was putting it out there to to try and get these people to come out of the shadows, and he succeeded. Oh, you and I know that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there's a lot of idiots out there. I can just say that I've been to the pyramids. I have two things about the pyramids: don't drive in Cairo. It's the worst driving I've ever seen. We were, we were in the car for about two minutes. I said, I think we're gonna have an accident, and sure enough, the van we were in got wow. slammed into. We were in an accident, <laughs> and then I got to the pyramids eventually. And each each one of the blocks in the Great Pyramid is the size and weight of a Land Cruiser. Mm. And when you yeah. see them close up, it is, and you look yeah. at them and you do the maths in your head. You just cannot work out how humans did it. Extraordinary. And that's why yeah, all right. these crazy things come from. But yes, I have the aliens, probably not. But I'm a big fan of Eric von Daniken. Just uh, Google his work. The he's Chariots like, of the Gods. He's all about the Chariots, Chariots of, of the Gods. gods. Yes. What a book that was. Yes. <laughs> it was very thought-provoking and provocative at the time. Mm. But it, that's a very interesting subject too, the worst city to drive in. I, I think that would be a really good topic for the podcast. I'd have to throw out there um, Crete. I've driven on Crete. That was absolutely terrifying. And that was in a Sayat Ibiza, which was at that stage a little two-stroke jobby. So there was all things um, conspiring against a relaxed drive there. And I think Bangkok as well is pretty horrendous. Oh, yeah. I remember sitting in a hotel watching it across the intersection and the one side of the road filled up with traffic. So everyone just gridded up on the other side. So when the lights were going to change, it was this mad screaming dash to get back to the right side of the road. Um, as the lights change, it was absolutely horrendous. So to hear people's thoughts on the worst city, that would be that would be quite good. It'd be a good feedback section next week. Oh yeah, <laughs> but I'm anywhere in India. Chester and I went on a launch there, and uh, we got stuck at an intersection where there were cows, people, and then we realised that no one was giving way, and in the end, you just had to go. So we were like, I just closed my eyes, and we both like now, and just had to dive across the intersection. It was uh, absolutely terrifying. And we saw a cow coming the wrong way down a freeway. All and you don't, the, all the you do not idiots. want to damage or hurt that cow. Don't damage the cow, no. You can't. Sacred, don't sacred, have a cow sacred. Man. No. Yeah, that's right. Um, well, the, the other interesting thing in uh, the Dear Leaders world this week was that he took part in a long-form interview with Maureen Dowd from the New York Times, and she was able to extract information from him on a whole bunch of stuff um, about Amber Heard and Johnny Depp, um, Grimes and Parenthood and uh, Trump, and that's Ivanka and Donald, and politics in general, um, his time at Tesla, SpaceX, what it's like in Silicon Valley, Zuckerberg, Bezos, Buffett, all these other kind of billionaires that are out there, um, and his behaviour on Twitter. But I think at the end, the most telling thing was she conducted a quick confirm or deny. Here's 20 questions, confirm it or deny it. Really interesting device. And one of them that stood out for me was Gandalf the Grey was cooler than Gandalf the White. You know, okay, confirm or deny. Just didn't get a yes or no. Got, hmm, that's a tough one. I think in some <laughs> ways he was cooler, but he kind of needed to defeat the Balrog 
in order to become a better wizard, I guess, and played a bigger role in defeating Sauron. But he was definitely more chill as Gandalf the Grey and had a better sense of humour. That is the real Elon Musk. That's uh, a <laughs> nerd. That is the shock and awe nerd that resides behind the Tony Stark facade. Um, the other, the other thing is that I wasn't aware of that um, Tesla and Elon's a, a high-profile part of this is suing Rivian, so electronic truck maker um, or and SUV uh, soon to be hitting the market, and uh, Automotive News on the Daily Drive podcast. Um, publisher Jason Stein in a one-on-one with Elon had some questions for him and said, um, look, Rivian is allegedly poaching Tesla employees. That was the allegation that was put to him. And he said, I mean, it's not like a massive percentage, but they've definitely taken a bunch of Tesla intellectual property. He's um, got proof, he believes, of people walking out of the place with stuff on thumb drives, um, including there there are four employees that are included in the action. Um, and they've stolen stuff to Rivian's exact requirements. This is what we want you to take with you before you exit the building and come and join us, um, is the allegation. So they're poaching, but not only that, this is the stuff we want you to bring with you, is, is what is being claimed. Four former employees, including a staff recruiter, claim to have downloaded documents outlining the candidate pipeline. So all the people that they've been talking to about positions at Tesla, their qualifications, their background, how they rate, that's one of the things that has allegedly been uh, taken to Rivian. Um, also stuff on charging networks and a whole swathe of other things. Um, and CNN, in, t- in response, uh, Rivian, according to CNN Business, Rivian says the suit's allegations are baseless. But an interesting stat is that Rivian has hired 178 Tesla employees um, in the last oh, little while since its inception. So <laughs> you'd have to think they've, they're on a bit of a mission to maybe catch a hint here or there in terms mm. of uh, what Tesla's up to. So I thought that was quite interesting. If and, you're setting up an EV company, who would you be looking to poach? Oh, exactly. 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 And there's but, only one out there. Like, you got to yeah. take experienced employees from somewhere, right? Like, but, but, I mean, as far as Elon's concerned, they're all violating their confidentiality agreements and non-solicit agreements that, that they've signed. Uh, according to him. Mm-hmm. So they've taken IP, they've started to talk to others, come and join us. And so he said, look, they mm-hmm. were doing bad things and we, we've sued them. So it'll be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, I, would shared... predict, I would predict Rivian will be broke quite soon and <laughs> Elon's lawyers will be rich. <laughs> look, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting. We'll keep an eye on it. Uh, Tesla's share price, and last week it was 1487 So we've got a, a new sense of stability in the Tesla share price. The high of the week was on Monday at 1515 So it's all around the same little band. But Business Insider Australia says that um, Chinese electric manufacturer NIO, and we know a little bit about NIO, um, has become the darling of the share market. And it was the seen a huge surge in popularity on trading platform eToro displacing Tesla as the number one pick amongst Australians. So there's a, a lot of action there. And when you think that in 2010, Tesla was $19.20 a share, and we're now oh. at nearly 1,500, people are looking for the next big thing. So the uh, trade on that share has in- increased sixfold in the last month. Um, and the share price has quintupled, or the um, Tesla share price, 
what am I saying here? Tesla? No, it, I think it's Neo share prices quintupled since May and doubled over the last five weeks. So people are jumping on. If there's another place to be looking at uh, for that electric car development, you know, you see Tesla as being one of them and then Rivian having to steal their employees. But the in China, due to the regulations there, electric cars are big, 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 yeah. big time. Like every manufacturer needs to have electric cars in China. And so I was actually chatting to uh, Great Walls representative in Australia um, last week, and he was telling me that they've got some really, really cool stuff being worked on at Great Walls Electric Division called Aura, and they have a, a spin-off company that uh, develops the uh, battery technology that is currently working on removing cobalt from lithium-ion batteries, and that's a big deal because cobalt, um, not only is it extremely expensive, one of the most expensive things in a lithium-ion battery, but it comes from really dodgily sourced places. Questionable sources, mm. yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's a breakthrough. That is a definite breakthrough. So they have actually developed a battery that does remove cobalt, and um, the latest news is um, a big European manufacturer has purchased, put in a massive purchase order for them. So, well, well I suppose it's all about efficiency, isn't it? Because you can remove cobalt, but uh, presumably it's there for a reason um, and makes the batteries perform better. I can, I can make a battery out of a lemon. Um, but it won't, it won't, uh, you know, it won't drive a car. So that if they are able to do that, yeah, very telling. But, um, okay, guys, I think with that, we have reached the finish line. And I want to say thank you, Steve. And pleasure. thank you, Tom. And thank you. thanks thanks to our production ringmaster, second-tier staff surgeon and pet exorcist, Mr. Pritchard, for his incredible work behind the scenes. Today he's wearing a T-shirt saying, pants are bullshit. And no pants and chrome shoes, chrome shoes, something to see, uh, the reflection, uh, given the no pants scenario. Please pass on the word about the podcast and let us know your thoughts by searching for Cars Guide on Facebook and Instagram using the hashtag CG Podcast or email us at comments at carsguide.com.au. If you're an Apple podcast listener, please rate and review us. And remember, you can watch us on YouTube. But before we go, talking to an old mate at the Servo, and he said to me that COVID-19 in Australia reminded him of the Spice Girls. Everyone's doing their best except Victoria. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Not bad. Thanks, uh, thanks, Hammer. Thanks, Hammer. Yeah.